You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Will Getzman, who is a professor at the Yale School of Management and also the author of a bunch of fantastic books, including Money Changes Everything, How Finance Made Civilization Possible, and then this other book, The Origins of Value, The Financial Innovations That Created Modern Capital Markets. Well, Will, this is a bold claim that you make, how finance made civilization possible. And I'm, I'm going to expect you to, to defend that claim. I think it's a little bit more controversial for someone other than myself, because I, I've, I've studied financial history and taught financial history. And so, of course, to me, this sounds perfectly obvious. But to people outside of financial history, they might wonder how this could possibly be true. And so, in addition to asking you to justify that claim, the other question I would have for you to start things off is, we all know about history of science departments, right? Every university has people who do history of, of science, but the history of science focuses on things like the discovery of the planets and the invention of the steam engine. And yet you consistently refer to financial technology in your book. And, you know, when we think of the term fintech today, we think about, oh, wow, that's technology plus finance. But you argue that finance itself is a technology. And perhaps if we're studying history of science, we should be studying the history of, of finance just as much. So I want to know why hasn't finance been thought of as a, a technology? Why hasn't law been thought of as, as a technology? And how might we professionalize this field of financial history and give it a place at the table along with the folks who study the history of physics and the history of engineering and so forth? Well, those two questions are big orders to uh, address <laughs> in just uh, one response. I will say I was motivated to write the book because a lot of my friends and colleagues who are not financial economists regarded finance as a kind of a peculiar feature of uh, the very wealthy and more of an instrument of extraction rather than a way to get things done. And so my interest is always been in finance, you know, what does it mean to have this, these sets of tools, these ways of doing things? And particularly, what does it mean to society as a whole? So is it a bad thing? Is it a good thing? Is it an in-between thing? So that's sort of the framework for the kind of historical quest. And as I was working on the book, I really kind of started with, well, what was the earliest corporation? And when did people first start to take account of the time value money? And I began to understand that those things are fundamental to dealing with the complexities of society. To make a long story short, in order to, to plan ahead and also to make decisions about in the present that will affect the future, you have to have this framework of time and tools that move money back and forth. And one of those tools is a loan. So the book starts with the very earliest urban civilizations in Mesopotamia and shows how these tools for planning, for lending, for borrowing, for financing were used not just for what you might think of as capitalist enterprise, which would be merchant trading and so forth, but used pervasively by the society to construct promises and deliveries that would make it possible for a lot of people to live in a city that weren't farmers, but still needed to be able to plan how to get consumer goods and things like that. So that's sort of the basic idea. And you can imagine all of the, the innovations since then as our urban society has developed increasingly complex ways of growing and thriving. And the book gives a lot of examples about how an innovation, a financial innovation might have changed the capacity of a culture to grow and thrive. Yeah. I mean, I think people often talk about finance as being distinct from the real economy, right? And when people talk about financiers, they're, they're thinking about people who are 
standing outside of the, the real business, whether they're viewed as parasites by certain people or viewed merely as speculators by other people, they, they don't see it as an essential technology that makes everything else possible. And I think part of the historical context is to you know show how without those financial innovations, you wouldn't be able to do all of the other things that make for prosperity. Yes. When you look at wires in your home, they don't clean the floor. They don't clean the dishes. They don't actually light up anything. Mm -hmm. They're connection devices. But you couldn't have an electrified home without the wires. I think of finance as the wiring system, the plumbing system. It's not a, an end in itself. It's a cofactor in all of the things that we as a society want to do. And so it's easy to get focused on this medium of doing things, mm -hmm. which is the finance and for that matter, money, and forget that without a financial structure, we wouldn't be able to deliver most of the social services that society delivers. So that's the simple logic of it, that finance shouldn't be considered a strange stratospheric thing that has no connection to productive activity. Another example, farmers, they sow now and then they reap when the crop comes mm -hmm. in. But in order to be able to do something that's so separated in time, they have to have a way of financing themselves before that crop gives them some cash. That's finance. So that's the simple notion that the book presents. Yeah, I was speaking to another guest and was talking about for animals, if you want to help them understand cause and effect, you have this almost like 90 second window in which you can, you have to have the reinforcement take place. And so the idea that you could plant something at one season and harvest it six months later is something that other animals, you know, if it's not hardwired, they're never going to figure it out. I think one of your, your points is that finance has shaped how we think about time. And you mentioned the 360 day financial year and, and how that lines up with some of the astrological years that, that people were using. But we always talk about the astrological folks, presumably because they left behind a physical reminder of what they were doing. And at the beginning of the book, you mentioned that finance doesn't leave behind quite the same record as other human endeavors. The archaeology of finance is a little bit more limited. And so you kind of walk through all the different discoveries of how you know, we're able to reverse engineer some of the contractual forms and, and corporate forms. Now, Mesopotamia was more generous with, with physical objects. I teach a course where on the first day we talk about the history of, of money and I highlight that most of the cuneiform tablets, when the archaeologists found them, they were hoping to get, you know, myths and, and legends and, you know, all this other fun stuff. And what they found was, hey, this guy gives three sheep to this guy and stuff like that. It, it's not quite as interesting to anyone who's not a finance person. Yeah, you know, in some sense, writing down business contracts may be necessary because it, it wouldn't otherwise stick in your head. The story of Gilgamesh and all the adventures and so forth, those are things that probably could be passed down and remembered in some form because they're just fascinating and a great narrative. But the uh, early clay tablets that probably stretch back, well, probably more than 3000 BCE, those things have this prosaic nature that they just are quantitative records about promises and then the deliveries, really just kind of accounting records. The book itself starts really with that, those first urban societies, but we also know that tens of thousands of years before those, people were keeping records of some sort on pieces of bone. And those records probably had to do with the passage of the seasons, with the phases of the moon, and the kinds of things that would help the um, hunter and gatherer societies to do economic planning around the seasons. We don't know for sure because they didn't leave any written records. They just mm -hmm. left little notational things with pictures of animals and so forth. But this notion that you need a notational system in order to organize yourself in time and plan for the future is something that's quite an exciting feature of the human mind and the human society. So anyway, I left all that out of the book. Mm -hmm. So when the book starts up, we're at the beginning of the origins of writing, which comes as a result of the need to keep these records. 
writing wasn't invented to write down these great epic stories. It was invented to keep a, a track of who owes what. Well, when we think about the invention of money, right? I mean, record keeping and money are, are distinct. I mean, if you're in a small community, you can sort of just use ledger entries to kind of keep track of who owes what to whom. But you reference Aristotle's view of where kind of money came from. And I think it's a little bit different from the, the Menger story, the Carl Menger story that we all hear where it originated in, in small communities. Aristotle believes that there was no need for money until we started interacting with, with strangers. And then we needed some kind of, you know, physical token, which would allow for intertemporal exchange. And so I think a lot of people were very skeptical about Aristotle's view, but I think you, you, you say that maybe there's something to that. Yes. This, this question of where did physical money come from is interesting. Of course, right now, for those of us that have Bitcoin wallets, that part of our wealth is certainly simply a matter of accounting, as is most of our investment in um, mutual funds and, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So we right now have managed to almost entirely divorce our modern urban life from the use of these physical tokens that we call coins. But yet now we have more $100 bills, I think, outstanding right now than ever in, in history. And those, those little, when you were writing about the Athenian owls, I was thinking that those were like the, the Benjamins of their day, right? Yeah. Well, the point you bring up is fascinating. The, the growth of U.S. currency exceeds the growth rate of the global economy. Why is that? That's an interesting problem because money is nothing more than the, the liquid factor that makes the, allows the economy to grow. So you sort of think it should grow at about the same rate, but apparently lately American, the U.S. currency has, is in higher demand than we can model. Yes, this, this idea of money, the physical invention of money, that was a technological innovation. We'll never know, but I think that money like that was necessary when you had people that would come from another place and you might never see them again, but you wanted to interact with them economically. So a sailor shows up on your dock somewhere in what's modern day Turkey, wants to trade for things, wants to hang out for a few weeks, wants to pay for a hotel and, and get some food. That sailor may climb out a boat and sink later on. So this is, this is a kind of a tool that allows you to sell him things and let him buy things with an intermediary device that was, interestingly enough, it's memoryless. Once the coin goes from one person to the other, there's no blockchain record of the history of that coin. So people talk about dirty money, but once it, it passes from one hand to the other, nobody really understands whether it was dirty or not. Every Benjamin Franklin looks the same to somebody with in their wallet. Well, it was interesting, you were talking about the power of Athens and, and later, of course, it pops up in a bunch of other locales, but Athens gained its, its power, not just because they controlled the creation of these silver coins, but also because they had the most advanced legal system and court system. And it reminded me, I mean, today in law, we have choice of forum, choice of law. And if you're doing a contract in, in Russia, some, let's say, maybe you'll choose to have English law in a Swiss court or something like that. And so today we think about Delaware and everything happens in, in Delaware. It seems like Athens was like the Delaware plus the Geneva plus London plus New York all in one for that entire region. Yes, that's something I kind of learned while I was doing research for the book. My thoughts of Athens were, you know, amazing classical architecture and the origins of democracy. But what was interesting is to see that the economic and financial infrastructure underneath all of that, and sometimes the clash between the philosophers and the uh, merchants and the merchant law. But there's a very simple idea that you could sue people in court about a financial loss or a financial fraud is really interesting. I mean, Athens wasn't the first place where these kinds of lawsuits took place. We do know in the Middle East on these cuneiform documents that there were lawsuits that extended over years and so forth. But for Athens, the thing that was amazing was that these are, many of them were about voyages that had great risk associated mm -hmm. with them. And those voyages had to be undertaken because that's how Athenians got their food. They couldn't grow enough grain locally to support their population. So they depended crucially on 
these maritime trade, these seafaring trade contracts, and enforcing them was much more important than trying to give one person or another some kind of temporary advantage. You start the book by explaining what finance is, and I use the same language I use when I do my introductory finance class. People have already had economics, and they're, yeah, we understand what bargaining is. We understand what trade is. Okay, what's different about finance? And, of course, it's the economics of time, and it's the economics of, of risk, and it's about how you shift these things around in ways that expand the contracting space, right, across time and across individuals. But the interesting thing about your chapter on Athens was that most of these contractual disputes were adjudicated by juries. And sometimes these juries had 500 people and they're able to follow the ins and outs. Now, today, when you do complex litigation, right, there's complex tort cases or whatever. If you do it in front of a jury, you've got to bring in a lot of experts to do testimony. And even then, most jurors will admit that they have absolutely no clue what's going on. And they'll typically rule in favor of whoever seemed to have the smoothest baritone voice, right, as, as an expert witness. So how is it that these ordinary Athenian, I mean, was this part of being an Athenian? Did you have to understand how these contracts worked and how these journeys worked and how these different organizational forms worked? Was this just sort of part of what you learned? I mean, in today's world, do we need to incorporate into high school, teach people? Because most people don't get, you know, 99% of the population probably doesn't get very far down the road in finance in, in the U.S. And even I wouldn't trust my MBA students to sit on a jury if it was a complex CDO squared transaction, right? So how did they do this? To me, that's one of the most interesting things about Athens. The average level of understanding of an, of an economic argument, a financial argument, was really high among jurors, and yet the jurors were drawn from the citizenry. So I'm pondering that myself, but I have a couple of theories about it. One is the juries were so big that everybody ended up sitting on a jury at some point and probably more than once. And so over your lifetime, you trained up through exposure to these, these arguments. And also, if you have 500 people that are just told a story about one person cheating another, they'll walk away the next day talking about it, gossiping about it, arguing about it. And so it introduces these topics into popular discourse mm -hmm. in a way that today's you know, social media or today's television media might do. So that's one thought. The other thing is you only had to sit for one day on a jury. So, I mean, everybody could spare one day to listen to a, an interesting argument. It probably wasn't onerous. Plus, they paid you to do it. So that was another big benefit. Might have been part of the entertainment of being an Athenian citizen mm -hmm. that kind of hooked you into uh, learning more about it. I can't imagine a reality TV show that focused on the disputes over, you know, complex corporate contracts today. You know, in those arguments, they didn't always use logical arguments. They mm -hmm. used ad hominem attacks. They called mm -hmm. people. They said, you're going to believe this foreigner when he tells you this story. This guy is from someplace else. So they, they would use mm -hmm. these crude rhetorical devices as well. So one of the great legal minds, Demosthenes, could be found taking two different sides on the same case through time. So um, it was not a matter of ethics. It was a matter of crafting a powerful legal argument, not necessarily always the most logical. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about that is that when you think about, well, what did Athens export? Okay. They exported silver, but really they exported this kind of expertise. They, they exported legal technology and, and financial technology by having all of these disputes take place in, in Athens. Now, when you move on to Rome, a lot of people talk, I mean, there's a famous quote by, I forget who it was, that said that the most important invention in history was the limited liability corporation. I think whoever said that was saying it tongue in cheek, but when they referenced it, they, they weren't thinking past the, probably the joint stock companies of the 18th century. And you go back and, and show that in fact, well, you reference Ulrika Malmendier, my colleague's work, but you talk about how we had something like limited liability in, in ancient Rome and, and not just sort of the publicani, but you talk about this slave relationship, right? And how by sponsoring a, a slave, you could effectively separate your ownership from control. Can you talk a bit about that? Because that, that was something I found fascinating. I've seen books on, on how slave ownership in the modern times has essentially inspired labor law and 
workplace liability laws and so forth. But this, this was something that I found it very, very interesting. Well, yeah, this is a curious thing that came up. I didn't really know much about it until I started working on it. One of the most interesting features of it is starts in Athens, actually, which is the first banks that appear in history, the way that they extended beyond the lifetime of the banker was a succession, not from, let's say, father to son, but through a, the relationship between the banker and a slave who then, once the banker retired or died, the slave would become the banker, inherit the bank and maintain it. So you sort of wonder, how could that happen? We have this idea, rightly so, of, of slavery as exploitation. But when you come to Rome, you also have this example of, of a slave inheriting and perpetuating a business, particularly a financial business. So why is that? Well, you think about banking as a very specialized toolkit and a craft that takes a long time to learn. It's basically a non-compete, right? Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. The person's bound, they can't start their own bank and you teach them an enormous amount, but yeah, that knowledge belongs to you. So yeah, in a non-compete agreement, you know, we find that really distasteful because we believe in the, the personal freedom to use the knowledge that you've acquired. But that idea took a long time to evolve, I think. So the, the aristocrats were not allowed to engage in commerce, right? They're only allowed to own land. And so the way in which they were able to kind of get involved in commerce was to have these, these slaves do all the work and then they could pretend like they weren't involved. And so they wouldn't be held accountable for any of the liabilities that were incurred by the slave. Is that right? Yeah. So the real way it would work would be that if you were a senator and or a, a member of a, the real upper class, you really couldn't get your hands dirty. The law prevented you, as a matter of fact, from getting your hands dirty through being an active merchant. So you would have a, a slave who did all of this business. Roman law at that time said, well, if you have a slave that's doing what you just told them to do, and it results in, let's say, the death of a cow, then you have to pay the farmer for that cow. But if you simply give the slave general instructions like, I want you to manage my, my herd, and then the slave makes a decision without you knowing that results in the mm -hmm. death of the cow, then you're not responsible. So that's limited liability for the asset owner. You're basically an LP. Yes. Yeah. So you, you wind up getting the upside, big portion of the upside, but then your, your downside is, is limited. Yes, that's right. As long as you say to your, the real manager of the company who's enslaved to you, as long as you say, look, you run this, do a good job, yeah. eventually you're going to end up inheriting it. There's some incentive to that, particularly when the slave was also able to earn assets and so forth on their own. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk about the farming, right? The pubicani, and this is sort of the public administrative duties that were kind of handed out to the private sector. And this is something which reappears over and over again, certainly later in the book when you talk about the chartered companies. And you talk about how the emergence of the bureaucracy in ancient Rome kind of put an end to this. You know, people are sometimes talking about how privatization today is something which is always going to lead to better results. But I think the history of outsourcing public administration is, is a little bit more mixed. Could you talk a bit about what you saw saw there, both in ancient Rome and in more modern times? Sure. The way I looked at these early corporations in Rome, well, most of what I learned, I learned from Ulrika Malmadir. I met her early in her career and read everything she could write about these Roman companies. So most of these ideas are really hers. But I was interested in the kind of bigger picture of the role they played in Roman society. And Rome itself grew rather rapidly. And uh, the argument she makes is it grew so rapidly that they had to privatize certain activities like provisioning of the armies and, and collection of taxes and so forth because they just couldn't build the bureaucracy fast enough. And then when Rome got to be imperial Rome, of course, the, everything turned around and it built this vast bureaucracy and the privatization withered and eventually disappeared. So this is the kind of trajectory that comes from her work. What I think is interesting is that when you have a society where most of the people can actually own shares 
in productive businesses, you are sharing equity. You are spreading the wealth. You are letting everybody participate in this amazing economic growth of Rome. And so I, I sort of thought of these companies and the selling of shares not as exploitative, but as a necessary condition for a lot of Romans to buy in to what became a, a very militaristic society. And um, if you're going to pay for maintaining an outpost on the border between what's now England and Scotland, you're kind of wondering what's in it for you. But if you're able to buy into some of the economic benefits through owning shares in a company, well, you know, you might be more willing to see that happen. Well, when you when you fast forward to, to Venice and you talk about Monte Vecchio, I mean, it's, it's sort of a similar concept. It's a different type of instrument, but the idea that the citizenry is sort of aligned with the preservation of the state. And I think that was kind of the, the insight that Alexander Hamilton had at the formation of, of the United States, which was to, you know, make sure that the the financial interests were the people who had the ability to influence things were, you know, their interests were aligned with the, with the preservation and strengthening of the state. Well, you're making these amazing leaps through time and space. One way you could break down different kinds of governments along the fault line of finance would be to look at some of the city-states that emerged in Europe as uh, merchant-driven, merchant-owned, merchant-controlled. So Venice was very much the case. It was a, a great trading republic for, I guess, 800 years or more. But Amsterdam, Holland had those kinds of cities where the merchants ran the, they ran the cities. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the things, the financial structures and banks and financing tools were protected by the ruling merchant class. But you could look at other societies like France would be a good example where, you know, the king was primary in terms of governance and assigning rights to different groups of people. So to get ahead in France, you had to see if there's a, there was a way to uh, curry favor with Louis XIV and hang out in his new playground as it was being constructed in, in Versailles. And, uh, you know, you had to make friends so that you could get one of these special tax farming contracts mm -hmm. and so forth. Some people think that retarded the growth of, of financial technology because, of course, rulers play to a different crowd than merchants. They mm -hmm. have different goals. You know, you see different kinds of financial arrangements cropping up in these two different kinds of political organizations. Yeah, I forget where it was when you, you said that the concept of opportunity cost of capital was was invented, right? Because people, I think one of the kind of themes that goes through the book is that a lot of people find it easy to think about, all right, you give me a piece of land, I get the income from the land, or you give me a cow and I get the calves that come from the cow, or if, you know, if you give me a, a job, I get the income from the job. But basically creating some abstract notion of what you could be earning if you had this money in your possession, that was something which was sort of fundamentally new. It required a leap of the imagination, which kind of freed finance from this idea of physical possession of, of collateral. Yeah. In the Middle Ages, you think of this feudal society where, you know, the duke or something has a castle and then leases out or, or allows people to occupy the fields and then pay for the privilege. You know, the contracting structure that emerged from that was the Duke could actually borrow some money or take some money in advance mm -hmm. for the right to use the land for, let's say, two years. That same concept, people figured out you could do the same thing, only not with land. You didn't mm -hmm. need the land. You say, look, you give me money now, I'll pay you back later. You didn't have to identify some collateral or cash flow or say grain flow in order mm -hmm. to, to justify that. And that, you're right, the way you described it is it kind of frees up finance from a one-to-one -one connection with physical assets or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned how the word for interest in all these different languages was tied to cattle and cows. And, you know, it makes you wonder whether finance had sort of a leg up in, in societies that, that had these domesticated animals. One of the big parts of your book is about China and kind of the, the divergence between China and, and the West. And I found this, I think this part is something that most, even people who are familiar with financial history are, are usually not super well educated about. 
China. How did you get interested in the Chinese story? And, and did you find doing research in, in the Chinese story more, more difficult than in the West? Well, I got interested in China through a few different ways. One of them, somebody asked me to write a paper about bonds in China. And I just said yes. And that got me thinking about it. But with China, we have this wonderful opportunity to study the evolution of a financial system, an economic system that wasn't completely divorced, but mostly separated from Europe. So you, you can develop economic theories based upon, let's say, the emergence of corporations in Great Britain, but you don't know what's the other path not taken until you look at a society like China that had all of these sophisticated cultural features and civilizational characteristics, but lacked what we think of as the modern publicly held corporation. That was a prod to an economist to say, if there are fundamental economic principles, they ought to show up in both of these two very different settings. I got interested in China in two different ways. One of them was, as I said, through China's use of modern capital markets in the 19th century to very quickly leap forward after a period of, let's call it, economic stagnation and exploitation. And the other one was, just as we have political philosophers and economic philosophers like Aristotle in Greece, we also see that there were similar kinds of philosophers in China at the same time, thinking very much about the role of money in society and how the ruler would use financial tools, both to provide benefits, but also extract value from the populace. I'll add one more thing about China, which is when you study these long-term forces in China, the push and pull between the emperor and the merchants, you see a, a really regular process of merchants being allowed to develop new ideas, new techniques, new methods, new technologies. And then the government comes along eventually and takes those benefits away. Right now with China, people are worried about what's happening with the government taking the, the tech companies and so forth. And I see it as something that one might have expected if you believed in the continuity of the Chinese tradition. Yeah, one of the things you highlight is that, you know, this is an argument that's made by a bunch of historians, that kind of the fragmentation of Europe was a stimulus to innovation and the mobility of capital. The fact that if one ruler was behaving opportunistically, that capital would, would flee and move to another jurisdiction. In China, you didn't have that possibility. That seems to be a big part of your story, sort of in the background. Yeah, the, the crux I try and I don't know whether it's the only thing, but it's an important thing, is the invention of the bond market and the ability of the Venetian government and other Italian governments soon thereafter to issue debt, collect money up front, and then fight wars and, you know, use that to send an army off to uh, conquer their neighbors. In China, it didn't seem to have that kind of structure for a long time, not until probably the 19th century is when you, you see China actually doing things like issuing government debt. So that seemed to be a salient difference that was a financial technology. And it depended as much on the, the immediate needs of governments to local wars and the actual weakness and lack of a vast treasury that, like the kind that Athens had. And that really led to them getting into debt all over the place and in different ways. And Actually, weirdly enough, investors figured out that that was a benefit to them. They could hold the promises of lots of different states, diversify internationally, even though it was all within the little enclosed area of Europe, and, you know, to profit from these internecine battles. Now, there are a couple of really cool things that I learned in this book. A lot of times when in my classes, I talk about how, you know, the average life expectancy of a corporation is really short nowadays and it's getting shorter and shorter. And, and then I challenge the students to come up with a company that's been around for more than, you know, 100 years or so. And every now and then someone will mention the Hudson Bay Company or maybe they'll get clever and say the Bank of England. But you you highlighted a couple really interesting entities in the book. One was the mills in Toulouse. And then the other was these kind of dam maintenance entities in, in Holland. And you recount the story of going to try and collect on one of these perpetual ponds that was issued in the 1600s that is in the possession of the Yale Beinecke Library. Could you kind of recount those stories for me? Yeah, sure. They're both really interesting because they connect it. 
exact places that you could still visit. So, you know, finance being this dimension of time, there is a bond that was issued in 1648 by a Dutch water company. And the water company was in charge of building dikes and dams. Why? Because if you didn't have somebody maintaining those, doesn't matter what the other governments are, Spanish or Belgian or whatever, you have to figure out a way to keep those in shape or else the whole country's going to flood. So that company that existed in 1648, it had existed in some form since about the 13th century, but they issued some bonds to fix a little piece of something called cribbing in a curve in a river, the River Lech. And if you go on Google Earth, you can zoom down and see the curve on the river. You can see the little bit of cribbing that's been replaced since 1648, but it's all still there. And the company's still there. Yale was able to buy at an auction this one of a, I don't know, maybe a handful to 20 of these bonds that are still outstanding and they still pay an annual interest to the bondholders. Now, when you walk, when you walked in there and asked for your money, what, I'm sure, you know, I guess they were expecting you, but you know, it can't be a regular occurrence over there. Well, I have to confess, it wasn't me. It was my colleague, Geert Rowenhorst. Mm -hmm. He is from Holland, from the Netherlands. And so he walked in there and, you know, he could have been a uh, local bondholder. So the first time it was a, well, actually we've done it twice. We let the interest accrue until it pays for the cost of a trip over there. We bring in the document with the bond claim on it. Then we tell them in advance because Dutch TV comes in and films the whole thing. This company is very proud to pay us this bit of money because it's a sign. Who else can claim that they've been paying off their bonds for 500 years or 400 years? I mean, that's, that's like a great thing. So anyway, it makes the news and every decade or so, somebody goes over. Last time it was our a Bainiki librarian who is, who's also our, our sometime collaborator on this research. Well, so you have a background, before you got into finance, you have a background in art history. And I want to hear a bit about how you made the decision to switch from art history to operations research to finance and whether you, you think that that was a discontinuous move or were you sort of layering on expertise? How many times do you think you're leaning on your art historical insight when you're standing up there teaching a course on alternative investments, <laughs> unless you're talking about those funds that buy art. And I know there are some of those out there right now that, that allow you to invest in, in art. Well, I've always had an omnivorous curiosity, perhaps uncontrolled. And so in some sense, I followed opportunities as opposed to having a one goal in life. And so there's a whole spectrum of different kinds of people. I'm one that, that has done lots of different kinds of things, some of them successfully, some of them less so. But yes, I did have a career in the arts, had great fun uh, doing that and career in filmmaking and so forth. But, you know, I was really inspired by one teacher or actually two of them at the Yale School of Management. One of them is Stephen Ross, who has passed away, but one of the giants of modern finance. Another, John Ingersoll, who's my colleague here now. And for some reason, it was a little bit like my fair lady situation. They said, let's see if we can take this person who's coming from the arts and and train them up to be a financial economist. Anyway, that's my backstory. But I tell you, I still really am interested in what is art? What's the economic logic of it? Why do people need to own it? And so right now, a current project I'm doing with my co-authors is studying non-fungible tokens, mm -hmm. NFTs, because there are this peculiar art marketplace that just emerged suddenly. And it's like a laboratory that you can study all these things about the arts, why do people feel like possession is so important as opposed to enjoyment, for example? It's right there in this data. So the way I operate is to try and keep a foot in all of these different fields that I've found interesting over my career, as opposed to sort of saying, well, I've now turned a, a page and I don't care about it. I try and see if there's a connection to finance. And actually, there's a connection between everything in finance if you scratch hard enough. Yeah. And in fact, you talk a lot about kind of probability theory and, and how, you know, gambling and understanding gambling played such a huge role in, well, we know it played a huge role in the development of probability theory, right? With Bernoulli and, and others, but you also 
talk about how important it was to finance. And, and there are a lot of people who are successful financiers who we might look at and call them kind of gamblers, like John Law. But I guess, I guess when you're an expert on probability theory, it's not gambling, right? It's, you know, you're, you've got the deck stacked in your favor. Maybe you could talk a bit about that intellectual history of the role that, that gambling played in, in the development of the tontines and the life annuities. And well, I was astonished that the governments for so long of England and France were sort of unwilling to listen to the folks who were pointing out how they were mispricing these things. Gambling is, it's funny, um, the whole science of probability emerged in Europe, but really not so in uh, China. So it really seemed to have been a function of public fascination. Did people not gamble in China? Was there, there no? Well, there was a lot of gambling in China, but there was never this translation into mathematical formulas mm-hmm. that allowed you to be precise about risk. And that's strange because, of course, gambling you know, all of economics, all of our enterprises are have a huge element of uncertainty. The ability to quantify that is really valuable. Now, we know that people quantified it approximately for long periods, you know, back to ancient Greece. But in the 1600s in Europe, there was a revolution in probability mathematics. It really began with the insight that it, you could take two dice and roll them, and you could enumerate all the different outcomes, double ones, double sixes. But in addition, you could tell how many times each one of those came up. How rare was it to get double ones or double sixes? And that allowed just being able to count those things out and put probabilities on the outcomes. It seems so simple now, but it was not something that people really were able to do much. And then Being able to manipulate that mathematically could allow you to do things like figure out if you were going to write a a life, let's just say a life insurance contract, to be able to figure out what's the probability that somebody might die within the next five years and then you'd have to pay off to their heirs. And so governments in Europe were writing contracts that were life annuity contracts, which is sort of like our social security system. We get, uh, you know, after age 65 or something like that, we can start collecting Social Security until we die. Well, the government's got to have some way of figuring out how much money that's going to take to pay off. That means they have to understand the probability of me surviving and a lot of people like me surviving. Okay, so Europe was doing this very early, writing these life annuity contracts that's selling them so they could get money to go fight some wars or other things. And some of the governments didn't listen to the mathematicians who said, wait a minute, you're pricing these things way too low. People are going to live longer than you think. Mm -hmm. If you price Social Security too low, then the government's going to go bankrupt or you'd have to change the contract. I would love how they would find these young girls who had recovered from smallpox and and buy life annuities on on their lives and package them and, and securitize them. I mean, that's that's yep. another story that I, I learned about, which was the securitization, which is, you know, I also have taught courses on securitization and how far back it goes, this idea of kind of packaging and bundling and, and how the Dutch had really figured out ways to draw up these complex bundling contracts and how it had enabled the financing of things like the peopling of Western New York. Yeah. You know, once you have the basic logic of finance, which is one of them is if it pays off, it has exactly the same risk characteristics and it has to sell for the same price. Mm-hmm. Or diversification, you bundle a bunch of things together and you can get a better prediction of what the average will be. Those basic insights allow you to think about mixing and matching and, and combining things. Mm-hmm. So what we think of a securitization now basically goes back to some Dutch bankers in the uh, 1700s. And they figured out that they could take a whole bunch of contracts like bonds that were written by, let's say, the the Danish toll system and the bridges in in Italy and so forth. All these bonds that are issued, they could bundle them up into a portfolio, just like a mutual fund, and then sell shares against them. And the people that bought the shares might not have been able to afford each one of those individual bonds separately, but they were able to hold a diversified portfolio. And so therefore, some level of risk was being mitigated. But that's just one kind of securitization. 
The other kind of securitization, which you mentioned, is to take these life annuity contracts from 100 different people and then bundle them together and write a security against them and then take a cut, which is what the bankers were doing. But that insight from the 18th century created the first serious sort of securitizations and investment banks and so forth that we have with us today. So when you're teaching finance, and I know most of the time you're teaching courses in just standard financial courses, and then you have a financial history course that you kind of do in addition, when you're teaching sort of a regular finance class, how important is it, do you think, or how useful is it, do you think, for people studying finance to know a bit about financial history? I mean, when you're studying biology, you don't go back and, and read Darwin, but you definitely go back and understand what single-celled organisms, you know, were, were like. Do you think it's helpful? I mean, I certainly found it helpful. I, I found it very difficult to understand macroeconomics without understanding money and banking. And I found it very difficult to understand money and banking until I understood like very, very rudimentary things like how goldsmiths operated. And then, you know, building on those simpler forms allowed me to understand the more complex forms. Do you think it's useful as a form of pedagogy to incorporate these historical examples as sort of simplifications of what we see in contemporary finance? Well, I guess I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think so, but I, I've had my students tell me that they didn't really understand some basic financial principles until they were exposed to the history behind them mm -hmm. and uh, the logic of present value calculations and so forth. So uh, at least some of them have told me that it's made a difference in terms of their professional use of these tools. For me, I'm always interested in where do things come from and, and why they matter. And I try to focus on the sort of bigger picture of the implications of having these tools. And I think that that's an important thing. You can only get it through history mm -hmm. because it takes time for things to play out. You can think about the 1920s as an important period in economic history and, and how does it relate to the Great Depression and, and so forth. But you cannot do a deep study of anything in the financial world if you only have three or four years of experience. So the trajectory of time is important. Historical models for the consequences of things like securitization are extremely important. You know, I tend to think that if you really want to understand the, the big picture, you have to look at history. And certainly if you're trying to anticipate, you know, what could go wrong, it's helpful to review some of the, uh, the fiascos that have happened. South Sea Bubble, a great example. And John Law, fantastic story. All the bankruptcies. I know in finance, what we'll do is we'll, we'll look at the S&P 500 or we'll look at the U.S. stock market and we'll look at the returns oh, since 1929. We'll say, this is fantastic. But of course, if, if you invested in Rome and you got that kind of return, you'd have something that would be, you know, you'd, you'd own the entire universe, right? After investing one, the equivalent of $1. And so it seems like one of the, the key trends that you see is that the interest rates just have gone consistently down. You talk about these contracts in Mesopotamia where you'd get 33% a year. And that's a trend that seems to be playing out, you know, the last decade or so. We're just continually making things safer and, you know, figuring out ways to reduce risk. Yeah, it's interesting. We have, um, I have a colleague who is a postdoc at the Yale School of Management for the last couple of years, Paul Smeltzing, and he's got a paper about 800 years of interest rates. And there's really one punchline to it, which is they've gone down. Yeah, right. <laughs> like the very long-term trend is consistently mm -hmm. down. Our theory tells us that's because of the reduction in risk. And those reductions can come about for different reasons. One of them being just the ability to sue and, you know, the ability to do better as a creditor in default. Mm -hmm. Another one could be a decline in destructive wars or changes in inflation, all sorts of reasons. But what do you do in a circumstance where the rate of interest is really small unless you take big risks? And we find ourselves in that circumstance now. Pension funds, endowments, these kinds of institutions that are doing great good are faced with the problem of how do they make their, put their money to work in such a way as to be able to meet those obligations that they want to meet. It's very hard to tell them that bonds are not really helping them very much right now in their portfolio. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned the last question, you start off the book by saying that the financial view of things 
poses a threat often to status quo, right? And that there are other ways that humans can interact and relate to one another that are, you know, non-financial. And this financial view tends to disrupt them and allow for more anonymity in terms of interaction, allow more kind of intertemporal exchange, more international exchange. Do you think we still have that tension? Do you think we still have this, there's a resistance to this view? And is this financial view of the world sort of an irreversible and integral part of the way we think of ourselves as humans now? One word answer is yes, definitely. We've seen throughout history when there are these financial innovations that change the normal order of things, like the ability to borrow money from a bank as opposed to asking your relatives to, to lend you some money. It represents sometimes a level of freedom or a change in social relationships that can be perceived as risky. The other thing is that even before we had financial technology, so go back, you know, five or 10,000 years, we still had needs for planning and risk sharing, mm -hmm. but those took the form of social relationships, reciprocity, like, you know, I go out, I kill an antelope but you didn't, and I'll share with you because I know you'll do that when you kill the antelope. So that kind of reciprocity, I think, is practically hardwired or possibly very strongly softwired into mm -hmm. culture and expectations of equity. Right now, we're going through a period of self-examination by corporations about what their responsibilities are to not just the owners of their shares, but also so-called stakeholders, different aspects of society that their company might have a, an influence on. So that kind of self-examination I see in the context of this mm. sort of formal notion of what a corporation does and owes duty to versus this presumption that people, individuals, and corporate entities are expected by society in some sense to share or to try and help make things more equitable. Depends on what you mean by equity and equitable. Mm -hmm. And so the discourse is going back and forth all the time about this and, and even people trying to invent ways to further what they believe might be equity. But I think it's a very lively debate right now. I hope people keep open minds about every dimension of it and we'll see what happens. William, thank you so much. It's fantastic. Glad we could have a chat and check this book out. Money changes everything. It's really, I, I think the word would be what, tour de force. It's a comprehensive history. Kind of reminded me a bit of uh, Fernand Braudel, you know, really, really big book. And also this one here, The Origins of Wealth, which is just, you know, has so much cool stuff, lots of fantastic illustrations and stories. We'll hope to speak to you again soon. Greg, it's been really a uh, terrific conversation. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.